There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Movember Radio. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. This is a weekly podcast focusing on men's health and the issues that men face today. There's over 5 million people in the Movember community each week. We speak with someone from that community who is passionate about changing the face of men's health. You can never miss an episode by finding us in SoundCloud, iTunes or the podcast app of your choice. Also, MovemberRadio.com. My guest this week is surf industry legend, Jesse Fain. Now, Jesse was born in Queensland. He grew up in San Francisco, toured the world with the ASP Pro Surfing Tour for many years, and then has settled in Topanga Canyon near Los Angeles. I am lucky to call Jesse a friend. I've known him for well over a decade. And it is with no hyperbole that I tell you he's the greatest surfer I've ever seen. He was never really the right guy for competitive surfing. Instead, he really used his time on the Surfing World Tour working as a media liaison to pretty much paint the most beautiful lines you've ever seen on the most exotic of waves all around this big blue planet. I've heard Jesse surfing described like this, but to watch Jesse surf is like watching butterflies dance. Jesse's life of sun, surf and sand, though, isn't without its ups and downs. He's a single dad, and he has some wise words about dealing with the stresses which that situation can put on a man. So, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jesse Fain. Hello, Jesse. How are you? I'm great, Asha. How are you, mate? <laughs> I'm good, brother. <laughs> Where in the world do we find you today? Could you describe it for people who aren't from there? Yeah, I'm in Topanga, California, and it's hot. We're in summer, and it's a beautiful day. I've been outside doing manual labor all day, so I feel like I'm ready to speak to the, the audience of November. I've been doing <laughs> blokes work all day outside, getting the suntan. Uh, so this is Topanga Canyon, which is, so you're about, you're up a mountain, but down the road about 10 minutes, what is there? <laughs> well, you would know better than most, mate. You ride your bike past here all the time in the past, but yeah, it's about 10 minutes from the coast and uh, up in the canyon, it's a rustic uh, old little community here and um i love it it's um it's just really grounded people surrounded by nature but really close to 
the beast that is Los Angeles. Yeah, it's, it is. People don't quite realize that you can live in Topanga and still be, you're only tw- 15 minutes from Venice Beach. Uh, when the traffic's right. <laughs> yeah, that's, it can be 15 or an hour. So it's a beautiful place though, for sure. It's, it's kind of being from Australia, it definitely gives me a bit of that sense of space, which, um, we lose when you're in Santa Monica and Venice or, yeah. um, city kind of locations. How far is that from where you grew up? Oh, okay. Well, I was born in Queensland, but I, grew up in San Francisco, actually. I lived in San Francisco until I was seven years old. And then we moved to Sydney, where my dad's from. And then I pretty much lived in Narrabeen from the age of just before I turned 10 until, I mean, my mother and brother still live in Narrabeen. So my whole school life and I guess most of my memories are from Narrabeen. Narrabeen has some folklore about it for for folks who are from this part of the world, but for people who are listening elsewhere, can you kind of describe what Narrabeen is and being a surfer from Narrabeen, what that means? Well, I don't know what it means to other people, but to me, Narrabeen was just, it had such a rich surfing heritage and and a tough one at that. Um, I mean, I grew up just being able to go walk down the beach and see some of the best surfers in the world on a I mean, on the regular, every single day, there'd be Damien Hardman, Simon Anderson, Terry Fitzgerald, um, and that older generation, Greg Anderson, to the, the Cowper brothers, the Fitzgerald brothers, um, then to like the Kidmans and just Nathan Webster, Chris Davidson, so many amazing surfers. And it's just a really competitive environment, I think, is bred from that. But I mean, way before I started surfing, it was just the focal point of kind of Sydney, if not Australian surfing for a long time. And a lot of like champion surfers came out of there and the surf industry as well, in a sense, um, in Sydney. What did you learn about what it was to be a man growing up around all of that? Oh, gosh, good question. <laughs> um, beer was a big part of it, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and I mean, I guess a, a no bullshit approach too to most things. I mean, hard work. I mean, most of the people that I grew up looking up to were great surfers, but they were also tradesmen. They were like builders and carpenters. And um, I definitely saw people that worked hard and then they played hard and they were super competitive in everything they did. Um, so I think from my earliest memories, um, at least from the beach, it was definitely that. Like you, you didn't get anything given to you easily. You had to work for a wave in the lineup and you had to work for um, everything else. And that competitive nature, I think, is it's still alive and well in, in Narrabeen for sure. Like I go back there these days and there's so many grommets there that are just amazing surfers and just, yeah, the same mentality as when I was a kid, just trying to get a wave out there. And when did you, how early was it, Jesse, that you realized that you were surfing at a different level to other guys your age? Um, gosh, not for a long time, I would say, because, I mean, I started surfing when I was 10, which I've got a five-year-old daughter who's already been surfing, surfs better than me um, <laughs> when I was like twice her age. So um, it took me a minute, mainly because all the people around me were such good surfers. Um, I, I don't think it was probably until I left Narrabeen or started surfing a lot of other beaches did I realize that I was um, fortunate to grow up in such a kind of hotbed of talent, if you if you will. Um, I mean, when I would go in events away from my local beach, I would do pretty well straight away. When I would surf in local board riders contests, I'd get humbled every time. I mean, from the kids my age to all the people a few years above me, I mean, just the level was like at the best in the world, let alone just your local beach. And did you, I mean, at that 
living there, the path from, you know, just surfing every day on the beach to getting paid to do it would have been at least clearer to someone living on, you know, somewhere else in, in the country. There would have been plenty of guys getting sponsored around you. Was that, was that part clear to you? Was that an option to you? Uh, yeah, getting sponsored was definitely um, clear to me from the day I started surfing. I mean, guys that were my age were sponsored right when I started surfing. Um, and the more I started enjoying my own surfing and realized that that was the way to get more free stuff, like get get some surfboards, get some wetsuits. And, and I was really fortunate. I mean, I was probably sponsored by the time I was a guest, like definitely by the time I was 12, I was getting kind of cheaper wetsuits or I started getting contest entries paid by Wick Surf Shop there in Colorado and um, just really fortunate to be in the middle of such a focal point of Australian surfing that kind of every kid that could surf well out of there was given some opportunities because it was, like I said, if you had a perspective on what was happening elsewhere, that was a real focal point and um, everyone wanted to be associated with surfers and up-and-coming surfers from there. I was definitely not one of the best of my age group um, like I had the Fitzgerald brothers and Nathan Webster and people like that. I definitely, when I got away from Narrabeen, realized that, I, yeah, I was competitive with most of the, the best kind of kids my age. So you, you have this incredible ability of surfing, but you didn't choose it as, as a career path. But you, you still had a career in surfing, didn't you? I did okay in events. I never really liked competing, to be honest, though. Like, And fortunately for me... I had some other kind of mentors at my beach. I mean, I mentioned Andrew Kibben before, and, and Andrew's played a huge part in my life, and he was the editor of Wave Surfing Magazine while I was still in high school. And when I was 15, I did work experience with him, and I mean, I only think I went to the office one or two days with him. The other day, I was up at a state title surfing event, or another day, we were working from home, which basically meant surfing, and he just had to do some stuff around his place. But but that entry into seeing that there was a career in and around the surfing lifestyle without having to compete for your kind of livelihood, I was really fortunate to see that because, and ultimately that's what I ended up doing. Like when I was 20, I was the editor of Waves Magazine after Andrew. So I got given a gift to be able to stay in the lifestyle that I loved without having to compete on the kind of on the beach, so to speak, to get that um, ability. And that led to like the next 20 years, so to speak, of um, being in that industry, which most surfers have had to do it through compet like competing and then figuring out an alternative once their kind of surfing careers ended. Mine kind of at the time when all my friends were just starting their really serious surfing career, I started working full-time in that lifestyle. What are some lessons that this mentor of yours taught you that you still use today? Um, well, to be honest, when Andrew called me to see if I would be interested to interview for the role and I ultimately got the position as the editor, he pretty much said, well, that's where you sit. Good luck and left. And I really, what I took from that was sink or swim. And it was kind of the same lessons that I'd learned at the beach. Like no one was giving me anything for free. Like I had to prove that I could do that. And I, I didn't know if I could, but I knew that I loved surfing and I knew that I had an interest in magazines. I had hundreds of them in my house. I'd collected since I was a grommet. And um, so I knew what went in magazines and I knew what I liked about surfing. So I just figured I'd had to have a go. And fortunately, I guess I didn't do a horrible job because I got to do it for a couple of years. And then I ended up being asked to move over here to the States and edit surfing magazines. So, but yeah, Andrew has become a, a big person in my life in a number of different levels but I think the main lesson he did was just he he gave me 
an opportunity to prove to myself that I could do something. He didn't hold my hand too much and, um, and kind of do anything for me. He just kind of said, okay, well, I, I mean, one thing I remember him saying was, or a few people at the time, it might not have been him, but it was just kind of don't believe the hype. Like when you're in a position that you have people like in a sense looking up to you because you have some position of authority that that can be misleading i mean it, you just got to remember you can only do your best and you can um he also i remember him saying to like work with people that you like because at the end of the day those people you're spending a lot of time with those relationships kind of get worked through the problems if they're people you actually have respect for and like whereas if you're just trying to constantly get someone that maybe has a some skill so, I don't know. It's, it's all the personalities. If you can mesh with someone, then you can work with them and you kind of figure things out with two heads. Pretty soon you were working for the ASP, which is the uh, the world tour of surfing, the top 44. It's, a, it's like a year-round traveling circus that goes from from beach to beach all around the world and, and everything that goes along with that. What were, you, what were those first few weeks like when you were, uh, when you were on that tour? Uh, well, I remember the first day that I actually was at my first event. I mean, I'd spent a lot of time around surfing events prior, but the first time I was working for the ASP, I was actually the representative of the surfers. That was the first job. They created this position for me to be the sur- surfer liaison between dealing with the events and the sponsors and the media which ultimately led to me running the media for the tour for a long time. But that first day, we were on the Gold Coast, and Mark Ocalupo was someone that I just was in awe of and had never really met him properly when I worked at magazines. And the first day, I'd been told by the contest organizers like to make sure the surfers didn't go in a certain area. And like one of the first people I came across that day was Oki, and um, I had to kind of tell him, Oh, look, mate, they don't want you to be in this one area. And he just looked at me like I was an idiot, like telling him where he couldn't, couldn't go at a surfing event. And it always stuck with me. Like, look, man, it was, as you said, it was an amazing opportunity. I, I traveled the world for seven, eight years nonstop. And it was just like a, a merry-go-round of amazing places and incredible people and lots of parties and celebrations and and all the rest that goes with that kind of lifestyle. With all of that ability in one place, you mentioned Oki, but he's just one. You've got 43 other guys like that, all that alpha male energy, all in one plane, one hotel, one area. What are are guys like that when they're in that kind of pack? What are they like when it comes to dealing with issues around their health? Well, that's a big question. I mean, there's... There was not just the top 44 men. There was also the top 16 women at some of the events. Um, so, yeah, super competitive people and very focused individuals. Um, and it does become like a family environment where people all become aware of each other's struggles because you're kind of going through the same sort of things a lot of the time in the sense of traveling and, and just jet lag and being away from home and your creature comforts and stuff like that. Athletes... Uh, by definition, are very in tune with themselves and with their bodies and, and listen to themselves pretty well as far as knowing when they need rest or if they have an injury or what food to be paying attention to. I mean, I, when I first got on tour, there was an older generation that was definitely, at least in the Australian culture, more in, like ingrained in the drinking culture. But when you look at it today, I mean, that's changed completely. Like it's It's so much more professional and... I mean, day and night, the the athletes and the surfers are understanding the professionalism of it and just the the focus that they need to have kind of all year, not just like 
just before an event or during an event. It's like, it's a real, I mean, their place on that elite tour is very hardly fought to get. So everyone is um, a lot more dedicated to the, the whole package now, I think, than maybe when I first started. So when you were in that environment, was there any room in that environment for guys talking about their feelings? Um, yeah, you know what? I, I think definitely because, and the reason I say that, not to talk about anyone else's story so much, but like I, I remember multiple times just like I said you're traveling with people so people whether it be through jet lag or just dealing with life I mean you turn to the people there and you you don't have the people back home or your family around you so you turn to your mates or the people that you are traveling with and really strong bonds get created I mean I remember one time we're in Tahiti or in Fiji first and then the next week in Tahiti and and like Kelly Slater, obviously one of the best surfers in the world, was just going through some personal stuff. And, and that that is the kind of environment that when you're so isolated from most people you know, like we would sit down and talk for hours and kind of get into some feelings, dealing with like relationships and the fact that like when you're in that lifestyle and traveling, that by definition you're away from a lot of the people that you would otherwise want to be around. So there's there's a sacrifice that goes with that lifestyle that – you don't really see when you're watching it from outside, but when you're inside that, everyone there can relate to it because you're every couple of weeks you're on a plane leaving whoever you love or um, want to be around away for potentially weeks or months. From the outside, the 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 world tour of surfing looks like just this haze of warm nights, swimsuit models, high stakes prize money on big comedy checks, always on the move. It sounds like it would be exciting at first, but did it get exhausting quickly? Um, not quickly. It took a while to get exhausting. <laughs> I mean, everything you just said is true and it is true to this day. Um, you fly to a country and for that country and that local beach or that city, it's the focal point of their year or at least like for a big part of their year, that's the focal point. So when you show up, everyone's there to celebrate everyone being there and every night there's another party. Every day there's like a, lot of energy and it's all pretty positive i mean and that energy is uplifting there's no doubt about it it's draining um afterwards and like you definitely would need to recharge in between events um or whenever you had the chance but it's pretty hard to have a negative point of view on that sort of lifestyle i mean in my case i did it for seven eight years non-stop and and more so than a lot of people because we would go like when you're working for the tour. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're also going to like the Masters events, the Longboard events, the women's events, the men's events. So it wasn't just like 12 events of men. Like there was a lot of other events happening as well. So it was a lot of travel, a lot of events. But honestly, like... I would hate to hear myself sound negative about that experience because it was so positive. You just go through times. And for me, I just got to the place where it really did feel like I was on a merry-go-round that I just knew what was coming up next. And I just, I kind of felt like, well, there's no excitement in living out the same experience over and over and over again after a certain point. And just felt like I was really grateful for the time and wanted to kind of explore different opportunities. It's interesting to hear you describe that because essentially you lived the dream. You lived the absolute dream. You got to travel around the world getting paid to surf without the pressure of the competition. And it seems like that's the kind of gig that people would want to hold on to for life. But you said yourself that it would it became something that was no longer exciting and, and you knew what was going to happen. That Was there a bit of sadness about making that decision? Yeah, I struggled for about a year with that decision actually. And I remember talking to some of the surfers and some of the people within the organization. But, you know, like a friend of mine and a lot of surfers, a photographer from Australia, Twig died one year when we were in France, and that just kind of changed things. Like he, when he died, it just, I don't know, it was a shocking situation, and and it just it started putting some things in a new perspective for me. And I just the age I was at and after that amount of years of doing it, I just started to search for some new experiences. So, yeah, it was a dream and I'm really grateful that I got to live it for such a long time. And some people do keep doing it for twice as long as I did, but um, that just wasn't my experience. It wasn't what I needed to keep doing to understand what that was all about. You spent a lot of time with some of the bravest, strongest, most alpha watermen in the world. You mentioned Kelly but and Oki, but also uh, Sonny Garcia, Led Hamilton, um, Mick Fanning, Joel Parkinson. Is there something that these men all have in common that sets them apart from the rest of us mortals? Well, I think self-confidence. That's And one of the main names you didn't mention that comes to mind for me when I think of my time on the tour was Andy Irons. Um, uh, yes, Andy was, he to me represents my time on the tour. He got on tour the same year I started working on tour. Then he was just caught up in the lifestyle of it and his kind of ego in a sense the first year and ultimately didn't requalify and fell off tour and then he worked harder than anyone I've ever witnessed to focus and get back on tour and then when he got back on tour he was unstoppable and won three world titles back to back and then obviously the um the other end of his career was a tragic I mean passing um way before his time so I, I got really a great opportunity to spend time around someone like him who just highlighted to me better than anyone just what is capable if you truly work for it. And just obviously he has a lot of, he had natural talent, but he worked for it. He, he trained himself to be a machine and just built that confidence. I mean, he really didn't have a, 
many kinks in his armor at the time and everyone else was aware of it. Like, I mean, Kelly has that, has had it for longer in his career, but yeah, being around that sort of self-confidence and just that bravado to go up against fellow competitors or the ocean and places like Chopu and Tahiti and waves of real consequence. I mean, that was so inspiring. And that's, that's the biggest thing I take away from my time being around that was how he lived his life and how he, the kind of the, the highs and the lows that he went through really symbolized that chapter for my life. And I'm okay, mate, if you don't want to talk about this, but it would be remiss of me not to ask you, what was your experience towards the, in the last years of Andy's life? Were you close to him? Were you around him? Were you able to offer any help? Honestly, I wasn't. And it's really a sad memory because I was fairly close to him while we were on tour. But then when I stopped traveling on the tour, um, I found myself here in Los Angeles and I wasn't around many of the events. And so I really didn't see him a lot. And tragically, I actually flew to Puerto Rico. And as I was flying to Puerto Rico, this is the week that Andy died. Um, my main kind of thought as I was on the plane going there is I can't wait to see Andy. Like I was really thinking that because Andy had he just won an event in Tahiti and he was I knew he was struggling like I was hearing comments about where he was at and I just was really looking forward to see him because like I just a big fan of him as a man and unfortunately I got off the plane and the first phone call I got when I was in a car leaving the airport was from the editor of um, Surfer Magazine telling me that Andy had just died it was a, a shocking phone call and it was a like somber move when I got to the contest area and um came across all the surfers and then we were just yeah in disbelief of um what had actually happened and what's possible to people that you think are pretty invincible how did you as men band together at that point what kind of conversations did you have um i mean i can only speak for my conversations and i had some pretty heartfelt conversations with some of andy's close friends and other surfers at the time um and then in a in a weird way there was some celebrating also like there was definitely people celebrating myself included the life that he had lived and the way he had lived his life and yeah i mean it's it was a weird place i mean kelly won his 10th world title while we were there so there was such a high and there was so much anticipation about kelly winning that 10th world title and so many people there to witness such a historic event and then there was andy's passing at the beginning of that week and so it's taken years honestly i think in my case like when i just think about it now like to really have a perspective on that at the time i don't think it was possible to really grasp how dramatic a high and low we were witnessing um in the sport of surfing let alone in just friendships or in um in life did it change at all the way that you guys look out for each other did you guys be a little more vigilant well again i wasn't on tour at that point so i i know that there was a lot of criticism within the world of surfing about like brands and their kind of dealings with their athletes and looking out for them more and the tour in itself. But, you know, like I said, the surfers on the tour and all the people that are traveling with those surfers, it is like a family, no matter what, when you're traveling like that, you're, you're in each other's face for better or worse. Um, week in week out and, and people always band together in those sort of situations. Um, I mean, it was a tragic event. There's no other way to put it. I mean, Andy was such an amazing guy. And however someone passes when they're 
so idolized and admired by people, it's going to be a tragedy, tragedy in the way his was, was even more so. I mean, he was alone in Texas of all places. And that's, that's just heartbreaking because, um, he was about to become a father. And I, I know for me, especially now being a father and at the time I was too, that was, um, that was the saddest thing to just think that he was missing out on such a big chapter that had yet to unfold in his life. That's the way it went. Let's talk about you you for a moment. You you talk about these guys that, you know, fearlessly paddle into these waves, but I know because I've seen you do it, paddle into the same waves, uh, some of the most dangerous reef breaks in the world, as you say, waves with consequence. You've endured monster hold downs when you've been underwater so long you don't remember what daylight looks like, yet you're still here. What about when you're out of the water? Are you able to handle adversity in the same way? Uh, I wish all the time, but (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, surfing has been my greatest teacher. There's no two ways about it. And the surfing lifestyle and traveling and all the stuff that comes with that. I I learned my lessons from the sea. I think that's like a a Pablo Neruda um, quote, if I'm not butchering it, but like the ocean and surfing every day is just, it's a, a power greater than myself that teaches me, humbles me, and I can take those lessons onto land easily. And I'm sure most other surfers do as well. I mean, that's why there's such an attraction to going surfing. We get off land and we get to be alone and we get to kind of, I mean, it's an individual pursuit. So you have to dig deep and whether it's a wave of consequence or you're trying to do a certain maneuver that you don't know how to do, it's like, it's a repetitive practice and that kind of the patterns that we get in through that um, help us in other challenges, I think. I definitely, I think big wave surfing, especially or waves of consequence, it just, it really isolates the chatter in your head and it really gets you to a place where you're extremely focused and in the moment. And I think anyone in any walk of life, if you can be in the moment and really focus on what you've got to deal with at the time, anything is possible, but it's getting that focus and getting that, um, that kind of clarity on what you're trying to do. That's I think the hardest thing in life. Once you have it, what you're trying to do is pretty easy. You mentioned that earlier that that you're a dad. Um, and I'm sure like many men, your life changed a lot when you're a dad, but you're also a single dad. And what would you say to, uh, to other men who are listening, who, who find themselves in this position where they're, you know, a dad of a, of a young kid and they're not with the kid's mom? Yeah, look, in my case, going through a separation was the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my life, for sure, because it it wasn't the dream that I imagined playing out the way that it ultimately did. And that's a humbling thing, which took me a long time to to be okay with. Um, fortunately, our daughter has got a really loving mother and a really loving father, and it took me a long time to like tell that story to myself in a way that that's okay, like that that's the way it was supposed to be. So... I think the hardest lesson for me in going through a separation, and and I'm not unique, obviously, most men around the world, that's their experience these days. I mean, but we grew up in a time when most men were still married to your mother. And um, so, yeah, for me, it's just such a privilege to be a dad. Like, and it was so, it just changed my world like it does any father. And ultimately, in my experience, I went through a separation, which was really difficult um, for me and no doubt for our daughter's mother, too. I mean, it's just kids like are born to two parents and it really does take at least two people to raise a kid, if not the cliched kind of village and um, trying to do it on your own half the time or however amount of time you get with your kid is it's difficult. I mean, men and women are very different and 
we um we have things which children need and i don't think a male or a female alone has enough for what a kid's hoping to get and what what they need so it's yeah i mean all you can do is the best you can and um and try to just accept the fact that the challenges that come your way are coming because you can deal with them so what would you say to a guy who's listening who might be in those first few weeks after the event his you know wife or girlfriend and his new kid young kid is somewhere else and he's listening to this alone what would you say to him everything changes i mean that's the the truth of the matter i mean everything changes and take a deep breath and realize that when something's really hard that it's going to be different soon enough and allow that change to happen i mean in my case i really fought the situation for a long time and and I, I don't think i won that battle i think i i ultimately progressed in my place in life um and my handling on the situation when i stopped trying to fight the way that it was and just truly began to accept that it is the way it is and that allowed me to just go forward and and focus on what was in front of me which was being the best dad i could be not necessarily the best partner in that parenting role but the best dad and that's all i've kind of focused on sense. Is there an analogy there with the fact that you can't change what the wave is doing? You know, I've heard so many analogies with that, but like, I think it's more on the emotions that you go through. And I've heard the analogy as far as like emotions are just like waves on the ocean and you don't have to ride every one. And that's really been true in my experience. Like when you, when you're feeling those lows, it's really easy to like, feel like you have no choice, but to catch that wave and be in that sense of depression or, um, struggling with a wave kind of knocking you over but the tr the choice and the fact of the matter is like we do have the ability to let some of those waves go by and just allow us to um kind of put more energy into a more positive kind of approach but but that all takes time and it's an individual thing i i have no advice for other people as far as how to deal with what they're going through other than to know that it'll change if you let it and that's kind of that's hopefully a parting gift to anyone listening if they're struggling going through that <laughs> You mentioned before, and I'm sorry I keep coming back to it, but you mentioned before that your friend, someone who you know you knew very, very well, unfortunately and very sadly, he died alone in a in a hotel room. As far as you're concerned, where where's the power in men speaking with each other when it comes to things about their health? God, I think it's paramount. I think it's such an important thing for men to feel okay about talking to other men um, and and feeling okay to reach out and ask for help. I mean, it's it's one thing to have a beer with your mates and say g'day and how's things and all that, pat on the back, so to speak. But I think at least from the Australian culture that I grew up with um, or in, I, I didn't see a lot of guys talking to each other on a real heart-to-heart -heart level. Not to say it wasn't happening, but I didn't see it as a kid um, in Australia. I, I see a bit more of it here in Los Angeles. I think men are, or at least today's men here, is a little bit more open to discussing things. It's like a bit of more of a culture of it here. So I can't really comment on what it's like in Australia. I haven't lived there for the majority of the past decade or more. But um, for sure, it's crucial. I mean, men and women. I think women innately communicate on that heartfelt level better than men do, but that's not to say it's not as equally important for men to do it. So what on the, on that, what is it that drew you towards Movember? Um, I remember being in Hawaii, it must be getting close to 10 years ago, and just seeing some of my friends um, growing moustaches, and I've always been a fan of the moustache, but seeing surfers doing it, and then, as it said, it just changing the way their face looked and starting a conversation about that, it got me aware of it back then, and 
I think Movember started really close to the Quicksilver guys down in Victoria. And so they got a lot of their surfers into the kind of the whole November, Movember program right back at the beginning. So I got to see that pretty early on into the um, evolution of the organization. So I didn't get involved straight away, but I was aware of it pretty early on and just a fan of the idea of putting some focus back on men's health or on men's health, I should say. Mate, it's uh, it's always great to speak with you, and I'm I'm grateful we could get a little slice of Topanga today for folks who are listening in the cold parts of the world. I'm sure it's uh, it's sure it's, sure it's quite nice to hear about it. Um, we're going to wrap up with the same three questions we ask everybody. When it comes to Movember, what kind of moustache do you grow, Jesse? Man, I grow anyone I can, and I've funny I've got a T-shirt from the company inside I used to work for that had like 50 different moustaches on the T-shirt, and underneath every one it just said awesome. So to me, any moustache is a good moustache and I'm a fan of all of them. So what do you appreciate most in your mates? A good laugh. I think if i got a mate who can make me laugh, that's one I'll call more often than not. And here's the last question. Say I hand you a magic satellite phone and you can dial up 18-year-old Jesse. What would you say to him? Don't take everything so seriously. Mate, it's an absolute pleasure having a chat to you today, Jesse. Thank you so much for your time, mate. My pleasure, Usher. That was Jesse Fain. You can find him on Instagram. He's at J-E-S-S-E-F-A-E-N. Let him know you heard him here. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, tell a mate. And I'm grateful that I could share this conversation with you, though it should never replace a conversation with your own doctor. Find us on Facebook by searching for Movember, and you can find all the episodes at movemberradio.com. This episode of Movember Radio was produced by myself, Osher Ginsberg, with Molly Hindman and Lavanya Nagendran. Music was by Toe Hider. Audio production on this episode by Daryl Misson. Have a great week. Thank you so much for listening. 